Hello and welcome to edition one of RIE, Research and Innovation at the University of Northampton. My name's Hilary Scott. I am Deputy Subject Leader for Journalism, Media and Performance at the University and it is my pleasure to be the host of this first Research and Innovation-led podcast. Now, I'm going to introduce you to my guest today. We are talking to Lee. Can you introduce yourself a bit, please? Hi, good morning. Uh, Well, actually, good afternoon, isn't it? So um, I'm Lee Machado. I'm an associate professor in biochemistry in the science subject area within the Faculty of Arts, Science and Technology. And Dave? Uh, My name is Dave Burnap. Uh, My subject is applied linguistics, which is uh, really about foreign language learning, foreign language use. And most of my time now, I'm supervising PhD students, but I'm also involved in a couple of research projects. Great. Okay. So what is research and innovation at a university? Because a lot of people who might not be familiar with anything beyond an undergraduate degree, um, so, you know, a, a Bachelor of Science or a Bachelor of Arts, what, where does the research bit come into a university, Lee? Oh, there's a big question for you. So in my subject area, because I'm a life scientist, I'm interested in uh, biology uh, and the application to biomedical research. So, for example, uh, when you do your undergraduate degree, you'll go to lectures and you'll learn about areas of medicine, about biology, all those kind of things. If you do a research degree afterwards, you you will, you, with me, you'll end up probably doing going into the laboratory, doing research, doing experiments to find things out. So you might grow cancer cells in the lab and you might treat them with drugs to see what effect they're having on their growth uh, and, and whether they can die and things like that. So that's the research side of things. The innovation side of things is around, is often around, uh, it could be around commercialising your research. So say, for example, we identify a new drug that might affect those cancer cells in the test tube. How do we go on and commercially develop it? So we might patent it, for example. Uh, we might you know, develop those uh, that with industry, we, we might work with companies. So that's kind of around the innovation. Uh, that that's very short whistle stop tour. Of so quite you're a big the area. money, basically. You're the, this is why a lot of kind of uh, uh, you know you might argue that a lot of governments want uh, children in schools to be looking much more at the sciences because the British used to always be at the forefront of science and technology, and then we lose that kind of innovation and expertise if you like abroad a lot of the time and I think that the the idea of STEM subjects kind of very much being given funding these days is to try and get that that innovation and research excellence back into postgraduate education I guess. Yeah it's it's a it's an easy sell for us in the STEM subjects I think you know it's different in the humanity subjects because there's for politicians at least there's an there's an obvious application for what we do you know it might be developing a new therapy for a particular type of cancer or whatever Uh, uh, so that's quite an easy sell for us uh, we are a very expensive area and and we suck up lots of money. Um, and that's the nature of what we do. I guess, Dave, you've probably got a, a different perspective yeah, coming from you, your area. If you look at uh, funding available for research, then things connected to medicine are always way, way, way above everything else. Um, that doesn't phase me. That's, that's normal. I, I want there to be cures for cancer <laughs> as well. I, I think that research and innovation is really connected to situations of change. That if we can imagine uh, a community, say, 100 years ago, imagine Northampton 100 years ago and people working in shoe factories, 
I'm sure that people like my grandparents, they pretty much did the same thing most days of their working life, uh, that things didn't change a lot. And I think that the, the more we're in a situation of constant change, the more we need research to assess what these changes are, uh, how we can adapt to them. And in my area of language, we're living in a globalized society. We've got new technologies which use language for communication. Um, political boundaries are changing constantly. Uh, and all of these things offer challenges that we have to examine to look at the impact of them in order to uh, teach them, in order to um, understand what's happening. It's uh, as somebody who's kind of come, I came from a journalism background, so uh, did my undergraduate degree, scurried out again into the, into the big wide world, uh, fell into journalism. And then when I came back into academia as a lecturer, um, I really thought I was just going to teach. I kind of didn't understand the concept that if you are a, a lecturer, part of your two thirds maybe of my early career in academia was teaching but then there was this expectation that I was going to to write papers now as a journalist I'm like I've been I've been writing for papers for, for 26 years but that's not actually what you mean academic well, papers are a completely different thing um but the academic papers in my area would be connected to practice so if we look at the way that journalism has changed over the last 20, 30 years with the, the idea of online journalism, the idea of 24-hour news channels, etc., this has completely changed the structure of the text. Uh, so if you think of a news story 20 years ago and a news story now, which is constantly being updated. Now, here's an interesting thing, that when, when kids start to write stories, when we first start to teach children to write stories, they tend to begin at the beginning and move through to, to the end. Now, with news these days, the most important thing is the update. Absolutely. What's the latest? So you get this reversed structure of the, of the news item. Which is what we teach our first years in a module, funnily enough, called storytelling, yeah. which is when we like forget all that beginning, middle and conclusion stuff that you learnt all your career. We now need everything in 20 words, yeah. essentially, in the intro, um, and then the expansion and then a quote to back it up. So you're evidencing it. And then when they come to write essays then they're like, we're, we're sending them back to the beginning, middle, end thing. Uh, and there are much deeper things as well. So, for example, uh, the idea of neutrality in a news text is very, very questionable, that all news texts are written from a certain position, either of the writer or of the, the organisation, the institution which is sponsoring them. And so you get things like critical discourse analysis, which is looking at news texts. And we, we just had a, a PhD student who finished a, a few months ago who was looking at news reporting of the conflict in Iraq and looking at two different online news sites and comparing the, the different ideologies of these two news sites and how they were trying to influence the way that people were thinking yeah. and behaving. So yeah. this, is, this is not something surreal. This is no. very, very practical. Yes, and we are, I mean, I'm, my kind of research area at the moment is around podcasting, funnily enough, which is not a new thing, even though everybody is, you know, mm. podcasting is very hot. Um, podcasting has been around for ages, but how institutions tend to use them is almost like an audiobook. Listen to this bit of thing, 
and we're going to talk about it at the next session. Whereas because I'm teaching media and journalism students, I'm teaching them to 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 listen to a guest lecture, record it, and then do a podcast about it afterwards, which is forcing them to analyse what was said. Whether otherwise, as you as as experienced teachers all, you will know that if you ask a student to listen to something that passive acceptance of a an audio piece doesn't mean that they're actually going to listen and understand and use the information that they're given. So that's where my area of research is. Uh, and also, of course, when people listen to anything, the, the text which uh, appears in their head is not the text which they've just heard. It's the text which they've just heard along with their existing knowledge, opinions, uh, biases. Uh, and so we each end up with a, with a different text. And if we're transferring something which was given as a lecture into a different format, as a, as a podcast or as a, uh, a written essay, then changing from one format to another format changes the things which you decide should be included, uh, changes the, the viewpoint. So it is a f language is wonderful. Language is wonderful. And, and, and back to Lee's biological sciences. Yeah, so... <laughs> so, so we kind of traditionally have been so you know you said you've worked in your professional industry for a long time and then you came into academia and to some extent that's quite similar to me I spent most of my time doing research in the laboratory before uh, kind of going into going into teaching and using that ref that research for teaching and our students we we've got that spectrum of what we want them to to communicate in terms of research we might want them you know, if they're doing a PhD, to be able to publish in a um, a prestigious peer-reviewed academic journal, and that's still the kind of gold standard for kind of quality in our area. But more increasingly, uh, we're trying to train our students, our undergraduates, our postgraduate researchers in communicating science to the general public through things like podcasts uh, and, and other forms of media and, and writing for different audiences. And we've got a dedicated module called Science Communication where those students are developing those skills at either end of the spectrum and all, all those all those bits in between to, to communicate science for different audiences. So actually, the old-fashioned idea of, of to be a top, top, a top academic, you can, uh, you know, you need to publish in a, in a, a journal like, you know, you know, a kind of recognised academic journal, but actually, you're almost flipping it back into the public consciousness by being published in in something that kind of people other than academics will consume. And that was always a frustration of mine when I first came in. Yeah, well, what Liz uh, just said is really exciting for me because I had a new student who arrived only last week uh, from North Africa. And her topic is going to be to develop an online writing course for students whose first language is Arabic, their second language is French, but they're doing master's degrees in biology <laughs> and they will need to publish in English in international oh journals. Goodness. So it sounds like what Lee's doing could be very, very useful. I mean, so we can have yeah. a little bit of interdisciplinarity yeah. there. I mean, I, th I think what's quite interesting about, about scientific writing, communication, kind of writing up your research and your data is... Although you're right, English is the working language for science internationally. But I, if anyone's ever looked at these academic papers, you know that it's not really English. It's no. it's 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 a language all of its own with you know very specific terminology that's specific to to the particular field you're working in. So 
it is English, but but not quite as we know it. it, it I, guess. I mean, as, a, as somebody whose kind of job is communication, when I first came into academia, it was almost like, are you doing this deliberately to put people off? <laughs> because because the language sometimes the language of research is is confusing. And if you're if you're an, if you're an established researcher and you kind of get the, the the formula of it, it's easy enough to understand. But if you're somebody coming into it new, it makes you feel stupid and that's where I think a lot of people get put off postgraduate study because they think I don't understand the language of it I've just got to grips with it for my dissertation I never want to touch it again how do you change that thinking uh, there's a a really interesting area which several of my students are working in which is the idea of using imagination and identity and language learning and mixing those together so for example uh, another student who's just finishing at the moment has been looking at devising english for law courses again for uh, arab students and they will need english so that they can take part in international conferences they'll be able to take part in trials which use documents from different countries and the approach that she's been using is to try to encourage these people while they're still students to imagine a future identity when they are going to be lawyers and working in courts and taking part in cross-examination etc and so the languages that we learn and the futures that we imagine for ourselves become linked together and I think that this is something which is common across higher education these days where the the idea of the of the ivory tower is really being broken down it's looking at people going back to your earlier uh, points about innovation and entrepreneurship uh, trying to get people to imagine themselves actually using this knowledge in practical ways, real outcomes. And that's why it's so exciting. It is very exciting because it's giving people that confidence to say, I, I am, I, this, is, this is what I want to do and this is kind of how I can communicate it. So um, g- give me the kind of brief science version of should you finish a, an undergraduate degree and want to take your study on because there's a particular area that you want to do, um, you know, what What are the options? Is it usually just MA and then PhD? How does it work? Yeah, so there's, there's two main pathways, really. If you've got a 2-1 or a first, you quite often can go on straight on to do a PhD. Uh, there's issues around funding of that, but I think that's probably possibly beyond the scope uh, for another day. Um, if you want to further refine your knowledge in terms of a talk course, you could do an MSc talk course. So, for example, we've got a new MSc uh, taught course in molecular bioscience, so uh, with a particular pathway in molecular medicine. So for those individuals that don't feel like they're quite ready for that level A PhD study, but they want to consolidate their knowledge in a particular area, they can do that. But if at undergraduate level they've come away with a 2-1 or a 1st typically, they might want to go straight on to do a PhD. And for us, that basically involves uh, them working with us as colleagues, essentially. Yeah. So they'll they'll start working in the lab. They'll come in. It's fairly... It's, it, it's nine to five in the sense that they're the hours that they would come in and be doing work but there's the flexibility about when they would be doing it because we grow cells we do experiments at all sorts of random times of the day Uh, and sometimes you might need to come in and check your cells are still alive or you you might need to do you know you, you you might need to 
uh, you might have a time course of experiments and you need to come back in. So, Oh, so literally you could be coming here at three o'clock in the morning to check that your cells are still alive. Yeah, exactly. Oh, blimey. Yeah, yeah. So uh, so that has some logistical challenges for us as, as researchers. But the nice thing is we have a degree of flexibility. We, You know, you, you can plan your life around your experiments or, you know, our postgraduate researchers, they're coming in, they're, they're doing a mix of things. They're in the lab collecting data, uh, but they're also reading and getting into the subject they're chatting with people they're going to conferences and stuff like that so it's a it's a really exciting area for for us as researchers including our pgrs to 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 be just to explain mm. what PGR so they're, means. They're, sorry so technical language already so these are our postgraduate researchers so these are any students that are doing uh, doing a research degree uh, there's been debate recently about whether they should be called students or postgraduate researchers I like the idea of calling the postgraduate researchers because in, in my approach to supervision which I'm assuming we'll come on to fairly shortly is 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 working with them as colleagues which we do at undergraduate level, but even more so um, when when their research is doing, say, a PhD, for example. And just to, to clear up another one, you said a taught master's as opposed to... You can do a research master's where you come in and you do research for one so year in the lab. you're on your own and you're, not, you're getting supervised yeah. rather than coming into a lecture. Yeah, so you're... Yeah, it's exactly, mm. exactly. Uh, the, the word we've been using so far is uh, exciting... Uh, I think another word which connects and also moves us on to the, the idea of supervision, the, this other word is passion. Um, because if you're doing a, a PhD, you've got a topic and you're going to spend three or four years of your life getting really, really deep into that topic. Uh, and so therefore, it's got to be a topic which you find exciting. It's got to be a topic which you are passionate about. And you, therefore, you have to have supervisors who are also passionate about this topic. So you then get the relationship that, that Lee was talking about, where the, the supervisor is in, in some ways at the beginning holding the hand of the researcher and, and leading them into the, the topic. But the, the further they get into that topic, the more they are becoming the expert in the world on that particular aspect of that particular topic. So towards the end, they're really leading you, the, the supervisor, deeper into this area which they have taken over and, don't, uh, and don't, occupied. Yeah, don't you, think that's, don't you think that's when you know you've done your job properly as a supervisor, when the, when the, the researcher essentially has become the subject expert? I've actually got a PGR that's in her viva now, mm. uh, so uh, which is exciting. And I, I'm not particularly worried because they get to that point where they become the experts on that area of research, and you're just asking questions and just challenging them, you know, constructively in terms of what they're talking about, and going, well, you know, maybe did you think to do that experiment? But by that point, that transition from when they first come in, mm. where um, they're still getting to grips with the subject. For us, they're still learning how to do things in the laboratory to the point where they're getting to the end of their PhD, for example, and uh, they're saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this experiment because the literature seems to indicate there's a gap in knowledge yeah. and this is how I'm going to do it. What do you think? That, yeah. that, that, for me is, uh, uh, that, for me, is the best part of my job in terms of... Very, PGR supervision. The, the, there's a phrase that uh, we use in the in the language teaching of preparation of PhD students, which is called the CARS model, and that CARS is create a research space. 
So you're, you're not researching an area which is completely unknown. You're researching an area where already, you know, the standing on the shoulders of the giant's idea, already lots of people have done lots and lots of research in this area or related areas. And what you do in your first year is to read around the literature which already exists to try and identify this research space. And then you say, right, I am going to take that space. I'm going to occupy that space. And then you have to design your, your actual primary research. Your, in, in Lee's case, it would be experimental in the pure sciences. In my case, in the social sciences, it would be trying to find some non-experimental way of interviewing or focus group discussions or surveys or whatever, of, of getting information about this as yet uncovered area. You see, that would be the difficulty, is it? How, I mean, with, with all the research, this is going to sound... Like, I'm going to sound like a complete amateur here, but, you know, what's new? Um, if you were coming in to do a postgraduate piece of uh, study to, to get, you know, to, to become a doctor, essentially, in your in your field, how how do you how can you know that the, the area that you're interested in hasn't already been done? Do you ever have PhD students who suddenly come back to you and go, oh, my God, I have found. It, right. It, it's it's a uh, it's a. A doctorate, yes, but it's still a student's project. It's not a PhD. Oh, sorry, it's not Nobel Prize. Completely breaking new territory. So it's going to be. This has been slightly done. derivative. Do you not think it's a, it's a bit like an apprenticeship? It I, is an apprenticeship. I, I think it's. I kind of look at it as being an apprenticeship. Mm-hmm. And in the sciences, it's. I think it's a slightly different approach we have. So we we don't have an expectation, and maybe maybe I've got the wrong end of the stick, but we don't have an expectation that a student's going to put in an application to the graduate school where they've got a fully formed uh, idea and quite often because of the technical nature of what we do the student has has or the prospective students got to have um, probably had a number of conversations with us beforehand about the project so the project in our area is much more fully formed when they come to the point of applying um, it's much more it's much more um it's much more fully formed, um, and um, so yeah, it's a fully formed idea um, that rather than for us, uh, whereas in your area, I think it's probably a bit more that I, that idea takes some time for them to, to no, work. I, I'd, I'd say it's very really similar that they they will send a research proposal. This is the key thing for anybody thinking of doing a PhD. They don't do if they don't just yeah. rock up and go, I'm gonna do a PhD in blah. You've got you've got to already have some kind of idea of this topic about which you're going to be passionate, which you can spend three or four years on. And they will write a research proposal as a part of the application process. Then I think, very similar to what Lee was saying, you look at it, not expecting it to be fully formed and, you know, this is ready to go. But you look at it thinking, well, this area is suitable. It's at the right level. So uh, we can work with the student. Probably over the first 12 months, we, we have a process called transfer after after 12 months. And in those first 12 months, they're refining the research uh, proposal. They're getting ethics. And, and I think that's such yeah. a big topic that we, there ought to be a separate podcast specifically yeah. Uh, yeah. about ethics. But they have to get ethical approval to make sure that what they're doing is is good. And just because we're, this is the first of what will hopefully be a series of uh, podcasts from the from research and innovation, is um, you mentioned the word uh, viva, 
so you have to translate yes. because people don't know what a viva so is for, or might not. Yeah, no. So uh, typically, if you're a full-time PhD student, at least in the sciences, you'll do three years of predominantly data collection, and then you'll spend a year, kind of up to a year, kind of writing your thesis. You will have written some of your thesis beforehand, but as a rule, most research students tend to do the bulk of their writing in their final year. That then gets submitted. It goes off to an external examiner and an internal examiner. It's a book. It's, yeah. yeah, it's a book. Uh, and it's a book where uh, the uh, the examiners um, have a discussion with the student about it, typically f- anywhere from an hour to four or five hours. Face to face. Yeah, it's a, fa- it's, a fa- it's a bit like this kind of discussion. The best vivers should be a conversation mm-hmm. Uh, where they're talking about the work that the the research has done, and what what they're looking for, the examiners they're looking for evidence of some originality, you know, some um, that it can be it, there's aspects of it that can be published that the the student did the work uh, and things like that. So, um, so yeah, that that's the viva. Although vivas work differently in different parts of the world, mm, some some I've countries some countries and, I've don't sat have. And watched a couple, and and it did sound yeah. like it's certainly in the yeah. arts that we would it yeah. would be a conversation essentially. Yeah. But people get very nervous about their vivas, and a, and a PhD can take what five to seven years. No, no. usually usually four. Well, five to seven years if it's part time. Um, okay, but if you're a full time student, um, minimum three, of three, three expected four. If something drastic has gone wrong in your life, as, as does happen, you can get an extension perhaps for uh, for another six months. I'm just becoming aware of time and we're, we're probably coming up towards the end of our, our, our half hour or so. Um, so PhD supervision, are you just do you just have one person or are you do you have more than one person? Uh, different universities do things differently. At Northampton, you have a supervisory team. And that's normally three people. It, it could be two, but it's normally three people. One, uh, the director of studies, who might not be involved in the direct supervision of the project, and then two supervisors. And that and that team basically are experts in their field or, or in that kind of area? Because I know there yes. have been... I mean, we, we, we have it in kind of our area where actually because we've all come from industry... There was, you know, there's there's less kind of um, senior academic, PhD, uh, reader, professor kind of roles going because we all spent 20 years being journalists. So we're kind of all, despite having long careers in journalism, we're actually still early uh, early years researchers. See, this is uh, why... You, ECRs. Yeah, early see, career this researchers. is why you all use... This you, is why you use technical language, yeah. actually, because <laughs> if you don't use technical language, it takes you a long time to exactly, say stuff. Exactly, exactly. Uh, so so you, you sometimes have people who might be doing a PhD, but their supervisor might be somewhere else, or is that less so, common? So the, the, the key thing is that as a... As a as a, a PhD student, that you have a team that can effectively support you, you need to have someone on the team that's a subject specialist. Okay, um, ideally, they should all have some subject specialism. So, for example, I'll take an example that we've got. We've got a project looking at a brain cancer, and we're looking at the role of a particular protein to see if it's involved in that disease. So, my colleague, Dr. Karen Anthony, she's She's a world expert on the protein, and she looks at it in Duchenne's muscular dystrophy. Okay, I'm a cancer biologist, so that's my expertise. So, so the expertise are overlapping for that project to to support the student, and that's when it works well. The DOS, the director of studies role, is 
is largely administrative. Okay. You want someone that's su- that's experienced of supervising the whole process to make sure that if the student has any issues or problems or the supervisory team are having issues, that you've got an experienced person that can help with some of those administrative issues. And, and there is a lot of paperwork involved. And there's a lot of paperwork <laughs> Academia, involved. they still cling yeah. on quite happily to, uh, to paperwork, don't they? Um, well, I think we're probably coming, coming to the end of our chat now. It's been an absolute delight, and I told you it would whiz by. Um, is there anything else you wanted to add, Dave, before we finish? No, it's you. been enjoyable. Thank you. Lee? Uh, I think I'd say if you're considering doing a PhD, come and talk to people, potential supervisors, whose area that you're interested in. Have a chat with them uh, and, and get those get those ideas going about maybe putting in an application. We're always delighted. It's the one of the highlights of my job is is supporting our PhD students and our MPhil students. That's really well. good to hear. Thanks very much. We'll speak to you next month.